This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to introduce the third edition of the Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion. This latest version offers enhanced images with immersive audio content for each section, making it an unparalleled educational resource. We've expanded our content with new chapters covering topics like MIS, oncology, OBGYN, urology, and more. You can find the book in both print and ebook formats on Amazon. Get ready to elevate your knowledge and achieve top Absite scores with the all-new Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion, an indispensable partner on your path to surgical excellence. Good luck on the upcoming Absite exam and dominate the day. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Behind the Knife Podcast. This is your vascular surgery subspecialty team from the University of Michigan. We're excited to be back and speaking to you all for another episode. I'm Drew Brait, here along with Drs. Bobby Beaulieu, Frank Davis, and David Sheckman. Today, we're going to discuss two pivotal trials in vascular surgery, the BEST CLI trial and the BASIL-2 trial. And both of these trials have a focus on the surgical management of patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia. So chronic limb-threatening ischemia, or CLTI as we often call it, is really the end stage of peripheral arterial disease. And unfortunately, it's very common and affects uh, about 25 million people worldwide. So that's about 11% of patients who have PAD. And CLTI really refers to a patient with PAD who has developed tissue loss, meaning an ischemic ulcer for over two weeks or ischemic rest pain. Once a patient who has PAD progresses to CLTI, the cornerstone of treatment is surgical revascularization. And that's really in addition to continual medical therapy, obviously. And the primary treatment goal is relieving ischemic pain, aiding in wound healing, and limb preservation. And without timely revascularization, the incidence of limb amputation is approximately 25% at one year after diagnosis. Perhaps even more alarming, though, is the fact that 25% of these patients will also be dead within a year, which really highlights both the impact of limb ischemia and the severity of common comorbid conditions. These factors in particular play a huge role in the discussion and the management of these patients. What I really love about this topic in particular is the vast amount of variety in management styles among vascular surgeons. The choice of surgical bypass or endovascular therapy as the initial treatment varies greatly among providers and is based on their patient's disease pattern, surgical risk, conduit availability, and patient preference. Surgical bypass was historically the gold standard. However, given recent advances in endovascular techniques, many providers have adopted an endovascular-first approach. Moreover, patient preference, physician training, and skill set often contribute to the variety of treatment patterns. 
If you ask a dozen vascular surgeons how they would operatively manage a patient with chronic limb-threatening ischemia, I'm sure you would get more than two dozen answers. Yes, definitely, Dave. The million-dollar question really comes down to what is better for patients with CTLI? Is it going to be surgical bypass or endovascular therapy? And this has been a big topic of debate for years within the vascular surgery sphere, and is still even hotly debated today despite these trials we're going to discuss currently. And the two trials we review today aim to better provide evidence to help answer this million-dollar question in terms of both patient outcomes as well as overall healthcare cost. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to start off with like a patient scenario. So take, for example, a 72-year-old male that has diabetes and long-term smoking who's referred to you for a three-month-old toe wound that's not healing, and he also happens to have breast pain. Studies reveal that he has a significant superficial femoral artery um, stenosis and occlusion, and he's got a good segment of vein for a possible bypass. His heart's in good shape, and the patient seems motivated, and I think the question is, what do you offer him? Now, a number of people would offer a upfront endovascular revascularization, and some would offer a bypass upfront. I mean, I know what I would do, but I think this case highlights Dave's point that you can make a strong case for either strategy first. Hopefully, after listening to our review of the papers and discussion, we can understand some factors, both on the patient side and the physician side, that may influence your decision in proceeding with a particular therapy first. Yeah, thanks. I, I think that that case really highlights the exact question that the best CLI trial is, is trying to ask and try to answer. So the, the best CLI uh, trial stands for the best endovascular versus best surgical therapy for patients with critical limb ischemia. And the long-awaited results of this trial were published by Dr. Farber and his colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2022. Best CLI was a prospective, randomized, multi-center, and multi-specialty clinical trial that was designed to compare clinical effectiveness and outcomes in patients with CLTI who are candidates for both open surgical bypass and endovascular therapy. And one of the really cool things about this study is that it actually grouped patients into a couple of different cohorts that would basically represent real-life situations. So the first cohort, or cohort one, includes patients who had uh, an available adequate single segment of great saphenous vein for bypass. And then cohort two consisted of patients who did not have an adequate single segment of great saphenous vein, but could, who could have a bypass using alternative conduit. And the trial was designed to be pragmatic, where after randomization, each investigator could choose the treatment strategy that they preferred. In the surgical group, the surgeons were allowed to choose the bypass technique that they deemed best. And addition additionally, many advanced endovascular techniques, such as drug-eluting stents and lithotripsy, were allowed, thus arming investigators with the full endovascular armamentarium. The primary endpoint was major adverse limb events, which was defined as an above ankle amputation or major re-intervention. So a bypass revision, thrombectomy, or thrombolysis would count, uh, or death from any cause. And follow-up data was collected at 30 days, three months, six months, and then every six months after, out to seven years. So to take a little bit deeper look, over 1,800 patients with CLTI were enrolled in this trial. Cohort 1 those with adequate GSV, consisted of a little over 1,400 patients with about half of those randomized to surgical treatments and the other half receiving endovascular therapy. One side note here was that adequacy of the vein was determined by the surgeon. And I think if you 
have a room full of vascular surgeons and pool the room, you'd have a little bit different answer of what's adequate vein from each surgeon. They didn't standardize it for the study, which I think makes this a real life situation of you having to choose which patients you feel have adequate vein. For these patients, medium follow-up was 2.7 years. Procedures in the surgical group included femoral popliteal bypass, femoral tibial bypass, and popliteal tibial bypass, with 85% of those being done with a single segment of great saphenous vein. Endovascular treatments included those on the superficial femoral artery, popliteal artery, tibial, and pedal arteries, with the specific type being highly variable depending on the segment that was treated. Technical success was 98% in the surgical group and 85% in the endovascular group. The primary outcome rates were significantly different among patients in cohort one. Those who got open therapy suffered major adverse limb events, 42.6% of patients, while 57.4% of patients in the endovascular group had major adverse limb events. Surgical bypass was associated with 32% reduction in major adverse limb events with a hazard ratio of 0.68. This difference was primarily driven by a much higher rate of major reinterventions in the endovascular group at 23.5%, compared to the surgical group, which is at 9.2%. Additionally, an above ankle amputation rate were higher among patients getting endovascular therapy with neither 15, nearly 15% compared to just over 10% in the open group. There was no difference in the incidence of major adverse cardiac events, including stroke or MI, between the two groups. Thanks, Dave. So when looking at, at the other cohort, cohort two, um, and, and as a reminder, that was the group of patients who did not have adequate great saphenous vein, this cohort consisted of about 400 patients. About half of those were randomized to surgical treatment, and the other half were randomized to endovascular therapy. Uh, for this cohort, the median follow-up was 1.6 years, and the characteris uh, characteristics of the patients were well-balanced between the two groups. Although patients who underwent surgery did have higher baseline toe pressures. Technical success was 100% in the surgical group and 80% in the endovascular group. Specific techniques were similar to those that you mentioned earlier, Dave. And the primary outcome of major adverse limb events or death from any cause occurred in 42.8% of patients in the surgical group and 47.7% of patients in the endovascular group. And this was not statistically significant. Time to major reintervention was favored in the surgical group, and there was no difference in the incidence of MI or stroke between the two groups. Awesome. So thanks for those summaries of the results. Um, I like to think that this is like our $200 billion question rather than a million dollar question if you look at the annual cost of CLTI in the United States right now. And I, I feel think there are some concerns that many feel prevent finality on the subject just based on the best CLI results. For instance, um, many practitioners have pointed out the lower than expected rates of technical success amongst endovascular groups. And additionally, there was a relatively high rate of POBA or plano and balloon angioplasty, which is up to 50% in the endo group in cohort one. Some feel that this may have negatively affected the durability of the endovascular group. We'll talk more about these in a minute, but I always first think it's helpful to interpret some of these results in the context of how they might actually influence your practice. And so when I read best COI, I tend to think of it as if it could answer some of the common reasons I actually try to use endovascular therapy in these patients. How about the thought that if a patient fails endovascular therapy, they can just go ahead and get an open bypass. So I, I think about that a lot. This is a so-called like does not burn a bridge approach to patient care. 
in this argument, if you fail endovascular therapy, you just sort of seamlessly move along the therapy curve to open therapy and, and no harm's done. And this is actually something I said to a bunch of residents, especially when we'd be in the operating room thinking about doing endovascular versus open therapy. But these results really aren't supported by the best CLI trial. There's no shortage of treatment failures in the endovascular groups in both cohorts. I mean, there's like 15 to 20% of patients in the endovascular group ultimately had a treatment failure. Many of these went on to actually get a bypass. Interestingly, patients who had had a previous attempt at therapy on the same side as their ultimate intervention were at an increased risk for major adverse limb event compared with the rest of the cohort. And this was actually true for cohort one or cohort two, meaning it didn't really matter what kind of conduit you had to use if you had a bypass. If you had an attempt at therapy on that leg before, you were at an increased risk for a major reintervention or above ankle amputation. So I think the idea that a bridge is not burned may not entirely be true. Another argument that's commonly levied against the open approach is that the patient really cannot tolerate the procedure. Here too, I think the best DLI trial provides some useful insight. Patients undergoing open surgery were matched in terms of comorbidities to the group undergoing endovascular therapy, yet were no more likely to have a major adverse cardiac event at 30 days or during the entirety of the study. They didn't have a major MI difference during the study period, and there was no difference in the stroke rates during the study period. Now, I agree that patients with CLTI are a relatively sick cohort of patients, but it would pretty much seem that the data don't support the idea that endovascular therapy as a treatment method of PAD spares them any sort of short or long-term cardiovascular risk. And so finally, what about the patients without suitable GSV? I think as Dave pointed out earlier, I mean, you really have to see, did they not have suitable GSV? 20% of patients in cohort two, as a reminder, that was the ones without a previously identified single segment of GSV that could be used for a bypass, ultimately were determined at the time of their operation to have a suitable single segment GSV. And interestingly, 13% of the patients in cohort one required an alternative conduit. So really, the surgical cohorts may have been more similar than we think, and all the hoopla about a single-segment GSV or bust may not be all that accurate. And while results regarding major adverse limb events were improved in the surgery arm of cohort 2, though not significantly so, the rates of reintervention were significantly lower in the open group. And you have to remember that cohort 2 was really only powered to detect a 30% difference in these outcomes. So if you look at the supplemental data that's available online at the New England Journal of Medicine, you'll see some of these um, forest plots that show a significant trend towards benefit with open therapy. You have to wonder that if you had a larger population, could you have moved some of those trends to statistical significance? Uh, thanks, thanks, Bobby. Now, now, I'm not trying to refute these results, but I, but I really do think it's important to understand any study in the light of the limitations that the study provides. Now, certainly there was a significant uh, procedural heterogeneity within each trial group, and as each investigator was allowed to use their own preferred technique. Some of this heterogeneity has been the point of controversy for many who do a lot of endovascular work. And it's buried in the supplemental indices, but around 50% of the patients in each cohort had angioplasty alone. And many of these were done with drug-coated balloons, but also many were not. So while the study design did allow for individual practitioners to choose which endovascular strategy they deemed was appropriate, many feel that it was not an appropriate utilization of some of the newer agents and more advanced endovascular techniques we have. But in some, the light we always seem to be chasing for the new and fancier endovascular therapy and endovascular toys may not be always warranted. 
Perhaps built into the treatment strategy concerns is that the authors were really not able to elucidate the degree of anatomical complexity of the patient's CTLI, so it was uncertain if perhaps the technology chosen was done for anatomical concerns or just practitioner, practitioner preference based upon the new and fancy techniques. However, this is a very important point of the study that highlights the paramount importance of a vein status for bypass grafting. I think it really argues that vein mapping should be done for patients who are considered for surgical treatment for their CTLI, and while not having a single segment GSV does not mandate a certain therapy, it certainly does seem to affect the efficacy. At a minimum, this provides important concepts and numbers that should be discussed with patients who are undergoing surgery for CTLI. And indeed, trade-offs between invasiveness and infectiveness are common in vascular surgery, and best, C best CLI provides additional context to include the informed decision-making process with your patients when you're talking about which therapy might they want and might be better in the long run for them. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, guys. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Now let's switch gears and quickly talk about the next trial, the bypass versus angioplasty for severe ischemia of the leg, or BASIL-2 trial. This was published by Bradbury and colleagues in The Lancet in April of 2023. Before taking a deep dive into BASIL-2, let's talk briefly about BASIL-1. This was a trial from 2005 in the UK that included 452 patients with severe limb ischemia who were randomized to surgery first or angioplasty first. This study found broadly similar outcomes in terms of amputation-free survival, but again utilized balloon angioplasty alone with stenting largely used only in bailout settings. As of the time of the study, there were no drug-coded or drug-eluted technologies widely available. In Basel 1, only 25% of participants had an infrapopliteal revascularization. Thus, even, best CLI, even with the best CLI, there remained some controversy whether as to patients with CLI who require infrapopliteal revascularization who are suitable for both procedures should be offered bypass or endovascular treatment first. Basal 2 sought to build on Basal 1 by looking specifically at patients with CLTI who required infrapopliteal procedure, a group that was very underrepresented in Basal 1. The aim of Basal 2 was to determine if a vein bypass first or endovascular treatment first was associated with less major amputation or death in patients with CLTI who require infopopliteal procedures. Basal 2 was an open-label, multi-center trial done mainly in the UK that includes patients with CLTI who required infopopliteal intervention. Only patients with life expectancy of greater than six months and were deemed suitable for both infopopliteal vein bypass and infrapopliteal endovascular intervention were included in this study. Importantly, eligible patients could not have had a previous ipsilateral intervention to the target artery within the previous year. As we all know, this can really limit some of our uh, patient group as these patients require multiple procedures and it's a chronic condition. Participants were then randomized to one of the above treatment groups. This was a pragmatic trial, meaning that surgeons and interventionalists could perform the treatment that they, they, they deemed best. For vein bypass, any vein that was deemed suitable by the vascular surgeon could be used. 
In regards to endovascular therapy, drug-coated balloons, bare metal stents, drug-eluting stents, and arthrectomy devices could all be used. Patients were followed for one month, six months, 12 months, and then annually after that. The primary outcome was amputation-free survival, defined as time to major amputation or death from any cause. Thanks, Dave, for setting up that trial. And then when we look at the results of the Basel II trial, in total, there were 345 patients who were enrolled, and 81% which were men, and 50% of the patients were randomly assigned to either a vein bypass group, and the other 50 were assigned to best endovascular treatment by the, by the treating physician. 63% of the patients in the vein bypass group and 53% of the patients in the endovascular group had a major amputation or died um, in the group comparison with a hazard ratio of 1.35 for the vi bypass group. The median amputation-free survival was 3.3 years in the vein bypass group and 4.4 years in the best endovascular group. 53% of the patients in the vein bypass group and 45% of the patients in the endovascular group unfortunately died of any cause during the study period. However, there was found to be no difference between the two treatment groups in 30-day mortality and death, major uh, amputation limb events, major uh, adverse cardiac event, relief from ischemic pain, or improved quality of life measures. Part of what is interesting in this paper is that at first the results seem to conflict with those of the best CLI that we previously discussed in this podcast. However, I think it's important that these are really two separate trials looking at two different populations and indeed two different endpoints. The authors actually suggest that from their experience, few patients with CTLI have suitable vein for an infrapopliteal bypass, and they questioned if the cohort in the basal 2 may be more similar to cohort 2 that was shown in the best CLI rather than both cohort 1 and cohort 2 in the best CLI. I think another striking conclusion from this work was just the overall poor outcomes of patients in basal 2 trial with a median amputation-free survival of only 3.8 years, and indeed around 50% of the patients had a mortality at 5 years. This again highlights the severe global um, cardiovascular risk factors patients present with when they present with CTLI. Basal 2 really highlights the severity of CTLI and shows that overall patients present to a vascular surgeon have a poor prognosis long-term, regardless of what endovascular or open surgical revascularization offers. And lastly, no study is truly perfect. And basal 2 is no exception, and it does have a few limitations. And what, what I've actually shown here is that the trial actually ended in November 2020, right in the midst of the COVID pandemic, which really halted recruitment for this study. Thus, the total number of participants they aimed to enroll was not actually fully met. And I don't think this really takes away from their findings, but it is a deviation from the initial trial design as it is worth mentioning in terms of their power to detect differences. Additionally, 85% of the endovascular interventions in this study were done by interventional radiologists, which I found quite surprising. It was different from the best COI, which had this number much closer to 28%. And vascular specialists and proceduralists in their specialty techniques certainly differ across the country, and that is evidence in this trial. But I'll be honest, determining clinical equipoise and treatment strategy, either open surgery or endovascular therapy, has always struck me as quite difficult, but I can only imagine in the midst, if you could only offer one strategy and your ability to determine clinical equipoise between two strategies while only offering one. And finally, this is a multi-country study, so it cannot account for patient differences as well as procedural differences across that aspect. 
Yeah, thanks, Frank. I mean, I think one important point to highlight about both of these trials is it's actually awesome that both trials were designed as pragmatic trials, meaning the practitioner could perform whatever they wanted. They could do a bypass in the technique they liked. They could do endovascular therapy that they liked. And so we're getting closer to combining those worlds of randomized controlled trials and, and pragmatic trials that actually look like real life. The other part that is worth highlighting, and you mentioned it, Frank, enrolling patients in both of these trials was incredibly difficult. You talked about Basil too, but BCLI actually had very difficult time enrolling patients that had to, it was ran out of money. They had to get some extra money just to be able to complete the enrollment phase of the trial. And so I think what that highlights is it's difficult to get people on board with a potentially providing a therapy that they don't believe is best at, at baseline that may influence results and establishing clinical equipoise is going to remain a, a, a therapy or a difficult part of determining therapy for these patients. Probably the, the final thing worth mentioning, and it wasn't mentioned in either of these trials is we don't know if medical therapy following intervention is going to have a differential impact on patients who undergo endovascular therapy versus those that undergo open therapy. And it's really my hope that as we start to look at what medications people go on after their particular intervention, we may be able to better clarify not only the surgical strategy, but the medical strategy that would best benefit patients, especially these sick patients with CLTI. Thanks, Bobby. You know, I think part of what's really cool about these trials and part of what, why we wanted to discuss them with you all is invasive surgery landmark clinical trials don't really come along that often. So to have these two studies coming out so recently has really excited the field and the specialty. And I think they do provide some really important data that can help us counsel our patients and determine which treatments to offer. And for the students and trainees listening, hopefully they provide the motivation to continue to pursue both open and endovascular technical expertise, as it's very likely that the answer to what is the best strategy is going to fall somewhere in between. We're really in a fortunate position as vascular surgeons to be able to offer the right approach to the right patient at the right time whether that's in the OR, in the angio suite, um, or even a hybrid approach as well. And we hope you enjoyed this episode and found something that you can take away from this and apply to your practice, even if you aren't in vascular surgery. We're going to have the links to the studies referenced in our show notes. Um, and thanks for listening. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.